It's religion today, it's ideology today, and our secularist friends also have a faith. Some kind of Disneyland fantasy. I know how this is going to get heard in the secular world. Where the pseudo-Christian masks are off. That's nonsense, ladies and gentlemen. Apologetics isn't just about giving answers to other people's questions. It's also about learning to question other people's answers or even question the question itself. In a Christian worldview. Well, welcome to Quantum number 186. Here's a piece of music that I hope will inspire you and may upset one or two people. That is The Average White Band. Pick up the pieces. Great song. We used it uh, one time in my church in terms of uh, a fundraiser for the building because The Average White Band, they're as funky as can be, but basically they were from Scotland and from Dundee. And I guess that there are people who are going to be looking at this and saying, ah, this is cultural appropriation or whatever. Uh, It really, they, they were, I thought they were just an incredible band. Now, I chose that piece of music, Pick Up the Pieces, because it seems to me that society is having a collective breakdown and there are going to be lots of pieces. Now, what we're trying to do on this podcast is help people grasp what the bits are insofar as we can understand them, not just analyse, but also to encourage us as we seek to put pieces back together again. Um... I tell you where, I I do have to begin with an apology. So first of all, let me play you this tune. That is, of course, Her Majesty the Queen, or at least it's God Save the Queen. It's the, I suppose it's our national anthem of, I try and have a national anthem each podcast, if I remember, and uh, that's the United Kingdom national anthem played by the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra and Singers. And in Hobart, I believe it was, and the video that goes along with that, and I put links to all this stuff on the website, uh, shows the Queen's visit, I believe, in 1954. Now, the reason I have to apologise is because the last couple of weeks I did not remark on or say anything about her 70th anniversary. And that is absolutely amazing. Even if you're not a royalist, she really is remarkable because for seven decades she's lived under this incredible publicity. Every failure, every mistake is shown up and she's just... She's been absolutely wonderful what she ha- has done. I mean, 
I think we really do take her for granted. She's presided, who else presided over such a large area of land and sea, including the country where I now am, Australia. Uh, it was quite funny this week. Uh, there was, or was it last week, there was a politician in the federal parliament read a speech in which she kind of suggested that she couldn't even recall the Queen's name and any case she implied the Queen was a racist. No evidence for this whatsoever. There are so many things to be thankful for the Queen. Her stance during the Second World War and her courage as young Princess Elizabeth. Um, the duties that she continually carries out, unfailingly courteous. She listens to people she meets. And I think for me, it's her Christian faith that is really quite remarkable. It is this simplicity of the Christmas story that makes it so universally appealing. Simple happenings that form the starting point of the life of Jesus, a man whose teachings have been handed down from generation to generation and have been the bedrock of my faith. His birth marked a new beginning. As the carol says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. She's just, I, well, I do just think she's an absolutely remarkable lady. As regards Australia, by the way, this is an astonishing fact. I didn't know this, but when she and Prince Philip came in 1954, 7 million of the 9 pe million people then in Australia saw her. Now, we're not talking about television. We're talking about people who actually went to see her. I, I just think that is quite remarkable. So, yep. God save the Queen and God save Britain when she, as she must do, shuffles off this mortal coil. Alright, um, that's kind of... I guess good news. This isn't so good. The the woke world. Now, what are we what are we saying when we talk about the woke world? Well, this is. I, I keep thinking, we're not going to get any lower, but we get lower. The University of Nottingham have placed a trigger warning on George Orwell's 1984. Obviously, they have no sense of irony, or they haven't read the book. The University of Chester English Department have put trigger warnings on Oliver Twist 1984. And my favourite, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, because the latter may lead to some difficult conversations about gender, race, sexuality, class and identity. They're just mad. And, and if you want to doubt how deep the madness has gone, this for me is peak woke. I, I, I think after this, we can't say woke anymore or... And by woke, what we're talking about, people, woke people get upset about this being spoken of as woke. But we mean this progressive religion, because that is what it is, this progressive religious ideology which destroys everything in its path. Uh, this is from an Oxford University debate. 
I've read the motion, and I believe we should move beyond all meat. So what we choose to eat has consequences far beyond the circumference of our plates. Specifically, your vote tonight expresses your allegiance to or rejection of a white supremacist patriarchal worldview. Do we vote to further inequality and sustain world-destroying violence? In the sexual politics of meat, I introduced the concept of animals as absent reference. In order to be eaten, animals must disappear as living beings, that is, be killed. They then disappear conceptually, as so many forms in which we eat animals' corpses are massaged by euphemistic language, hamburger, steak, pork, bacon, etc. Even the speaker just before me talked about turkeys. He's talking about dead butchered turkeys of whom part of their bodies will be eaten. Meat eaters order leg of lamb, not a baby lamb's leg. The animals cannot possess their own body parts. Tonight, think about how the language of our debate has or has not participated in the structure of the absent referent. Who disappears and why? 21st century animal eating requires our complicity in a new colonialism. We know how settler colonialism worked and a race and replace system. Yep, that, was, yeah, you, that wasn't a spoof. It wasn't Monty Python. That was Carol Adams telling us that eating meat is colonialism, white supremacy. I, I love the bit of history, by the way. Um, Meat-eating nations like the UK or America, uh, and presumably the rest of Europe, the Italians, of course, and the Germans are always eating sausages, and they, they took over, what was it, India, uh, Australia, China, who were all basically vegans, wandering around peaceably. Um, yeah, I somehow doubt the indigenous people here or the buffalo hunters in the US or the Chinese with their pork and duck. I, I somehow doubt that that applies. But it doesn't matter. It, to these people, nothing matters except the ideology. History doesn't matter. And they live in this closed bubble. The gender-based structure of oppression in meat-eating um, eating animals is a protection racket. The response to 9-11, liberal men are called soy boys. Now, I, I must admit, I like that insult. But it's the neo-Nazis who say that. Listen, if you eat meat, you're a neo-Nazi. You know, that's who the Nazis are now. I, sadly for her, uh, Hitler was a vegetarian. Anyway, Carol Adams, writer, vegan feminist and animal rights advocate. People will listen to you. There's another one. That, there's a serious side to all of this, of course, but it's when it impacts people's lives. So Suzanne Cotter, the new director of Sydney's Museum of Contemporary Art, has some news for white male artists. And it's just simply this. She says that today, if you are a white male artist, you are not so interesting. It doesn't mean to say you're not a great artist. I think it's more that this isn't what is relevant for people now. You have to think in a timely way. Well, who are people? I mean, white male artists are obviously not people. I would have thought uh, even a gallery of contemporary art would be interested in art, not just making political statements. Anyway, another person who's good at that is Joe Biden. 2% of US lawyers are black females. But President Biden has said that the next Supreme Court judge 
has to be chosen from those 2%. Now, in a just world, in an equal world, in a world where people were seeking equality, you would not choose someone to be your vice president because they're female, and you would not choose someone to be a Supreme Court judge because of their race or because of their skin color. But no, Biden's going to do that, and that's where America's going. That's where so much of the West is going. Ironically, it is profoundly racist, it's profoundly sexist, and it's been done in the name of combating racism. Okay, let me return to COVID. Now, again, we've reported on this because everything is unraveling here. Everything, things are really now coming to light. And the British Medical Journal, and I have to confess, I've cited the British Medical Journal here sometimes in a negative way. But in its editorial in April 2021, it pointed out some of the ethical dilemmas that they faced with vaccine passports. Now, in an editorial on the 19th of January, they demanded the full and immediate release of all data related to COVID-19 vaccines and treatments. Now, this surprised me. It didn't surprise me they were asking for it. It surprised me they had to ask for it. And they said it was morally indefensible for these trials, especially those involving major public health interventions, to be kept secret. And this is this was superb. The BMJ also accused pharmaceutical companies of reaping vast profits without adequate independent scrutiny of their scientific claims, particularly Pfizer, whose COVID vaccine trial was funded by the company and designed, run, analysed and authored by Pfizer employee. We publicise, we publish things, but we have no adequate data and the data is not being released. I love the editorial going on to say that regulators are not there to dance to the tune of rich global corporations and enrich them further. Now, whilst we're very thankful for the science that's involved, we have to be very wary of Big Pharma. And we need, as, as the editorial from the BMJ says, we need complete data transparency for all studies. We need it in the public interest and we need it now. And yet, despite this, the Food and Drug Administration of the, of the Biden presidency had asked a judge to keep all data concerning Pfizer and biotech vaccines suppressed for 75 years. Boy, if you want to feed conspiracy theories, start doing stuff like that. The judge didn't agree. The judge ordered the FDA to make public 12,000 pages of the data. And they should be releasing Pfizer's vaccine data at a rate of 55,000 pages per month. Now, on, that, on this same theme, in India, Pfizer had an application for emergency youth author, authorization of its COVID-19 vaccine. But the Indian government asked that they be able to conduct their own trials. Their drug reg- regulator wanted to do that. And Pfizer just withdrew at the prospect of someone out with their control conducting trials. Wow, there's just so much there. And one other thing to do with, with covid Actually, maybe two things. This one astounded me. The South African GP who raised alarm about Omicron said she was pressurized not to call it mild. Now, we mentioned that last week. The fact that she told Develts magazine. I just think, again, this is all part of 
you know, on the one hand, you've got people who are conspiracy theorists, but you've got people who feed that conspiracy theory by trying to silence things and trying to change the narrative and not allowing for truth. Okay. Um, well, I was going to say that that was the last COVID thing, but this is kind of to do with COVID. Um, an astonishing interview that the BBC got. And well done for the BBC for doing this. Again, I've been critical of the BBC for some things, but this they, they are remarkably good at getting interviews and uh, conducting them well. And here's some of what Djokovic had to say in his BBC interview. I understand that globally everyone is trying to put a big effort into handling this virus and, and seeing a, hopefully a, a, an end soon to this virus. And vaccination is probably the biggest effort that was made. Probably half of the planet was, was vaccinated. And I fully respect that. But I've always uh, represented and, and always supported uh, the freedom to choose what you put into your body. And for me, that is essential. It's really the principle of, of understanding what is right and what is wrong for you. And me as an elite professional athlete, I've always carefully reviewed, assessed everything that comes in from the supplements, food, the water that I drink or sports drinks, anything really that comes into my body as a fuel. Based on all the informations that I got, uh, I, I decided not to take the vaccine uh, as of today. So do you have, as of today? Yes. I keep my mind open because we are all, we are all trying to find collectively uh, a best possible solution to end COVID, right? I mean, no one really wants to be in this kind of situation that we've been in collectively for, for two years. I'm part of the a sport, a very global sport that is played every single week in a different location. So, you know, I understand the consequences of my decision. And one of the consequences of my decision was not going to Australia and I was prepared not to go. And I understand that not being vaccinated today, I, you know, I'm unable to travel to most of the tournaments at the moment. And, and that's the price you're willing to pay? I, that, that is the price that I'm willing to pay. Ultimately, are you prepared to forego the chance to be the greatest player that ever picked up a racket, statistically, because you feel so strongly about this jab? Yes. Now, whether you agree with Djokovic's stance or not, that's not really the issue. The issue for me is when I look at it and I think, wow, I admire him because here's a man who thinks things through. He's prepared to stand up for his principles and this he's prepared to sacrifice the glory of being the greatest tennis player of all time. He's prepared to give up. Champion now, I hope he won't have to. It, it is absolutely absurd because we know that vaccines don't stop people getting COVID and it's certain and they don't stop people passing on COVID. They may lighten the load and all the rest of it, but to ban somebody. And I'm not the only one thinking that. Scientists at leading American and British universities have slammed the expulsion of Novak Djokovic from Australia as punitive, discriminatory and coercive and counterproductive. Denying Individuals, education, livelihoods, medical care or social life, unless they get vaccinated, does not appear to coincide with constitutional bioethical principles, especially in liberal democracies. 
there are risks and harms, they say, from mandates to combat COVID-19, and that these risks and harms far outweigh the benefits. In other words, let people choose, and there'll be a, a small minority of people who will choose not to get it. The idea that Djokovic was a threat to Australian civil order and public health was, as they say, absurd. Anyway, enough of all of that. Let's have a good news story. Listen to this. For Washington fans, the Philadelphia Eagles might be the enemy. But after this story, maybe there's one Eagles player you will end up rooting for. 11-year-old Audrey Soap lost her father suddenly last year, and then shortly thereafter, her grandfather. So when oh. it came time for the father-daughter dance, Audrey's mother reached out on social media to their favorite player, Eagles safety <gasps> Anthony Harris, with a Hail Mary request. What? Harris agreed to escort Audrey to the dance. His foundation oh. even paid for her dress, shoes, and makeup. Audrey said it was a little awkward oh. at first, not knowing what to talk about. But in the end, it was a fairy tale evening, and they danced the night away. You're and the smiles tell it all. I was crying editing this story. Yes. I'm telling you, I know. I love that. Audrey Soap, father daughter dance. She's looking for it. Highlight for her year. Her dad died in March. Her granddad died five weeks later. He would have been the stand-in. And I just love that story. You've, you heard the story there of how, I think it was her mother, wrote just as on a, a, a complete offshot chance that uh, Anthony Harris, a Philadelphia Eagles player, and he he came. He, he flew across the country. He paid for her dress. He did all of that. I, I That is just, for me, just a great story. And even, I feel like I'm becoming like the soapy American presenters we heard at the beginning. But yeah, there's a tear in your eye with that. So, um, you know, with all the rubbish in the world, it's also a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, are also on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands. And then uh, it's also a broke world. Now, um, I'm going to uh, l- l- listen to this gentleman, Martin Lewis, who's, who's a great guy, BBC's expert on, on finance, and I've found him really, really interesting. So listen to what he has to say about the, the government's proposal to soften high electricity bills with a £200 discount in October. That's going to happen. There is no choice of it. It is not optional. It is going to happen automatically on every single bill. Then from the following April and for five years after that, you will then have your bill automatically without choice increased by £40 a year. That is how it will work. The best way to think of it is as a form of energy bill levy. We already have levies on energy bills. We all pay a part of our bill goes towards green infrastructure, whether you have green energy or not. 
a part of our bill goes towards funding the cost of moving customers whose firm has gone bust to a supplier of last resorts. That is a levy added to our bill. So what's going to happen here is in October, we'll have, rather strangely, a negative levy. They will take £200 off bills. And then each April after that, they will add a £40 levy back for five years to recoup the cost. There is no personal loan to an individual. This isn't about you borrowed money, you pay it back. So if you're living at home with parents and you move out in two years time, even though you didn't get the £200, your bill will still be £40 higher. Every household will be £40 higher. You'll simply get your energy bill and it will be higher because of this levy and the one this October will be lower. Now, this is quite an astonishing thing because you're getting this £200 discount without, without your permission. You have to take it but you also have to pay it back. So it's not really a discount. The Chancellor himself is gambling that the market price of energy will be falling in a year's time. And that's a big gamble. Now, what this is in effect is state-enforced borrowing. You may not like borrowing money. Tough, you have no choice. You have to borrow this money. And I just think there's something so much wrong with that. Okay, um... This is also God's world, and I was astonished to come across this clip of David Attenborough. Listen to this. Do you yourself, do you, are you a, a religious person? Do you believe in God? Well, put it this way. I do not think that knowing that life has developed from the simplest forms over 3,000 million years, as awesome a story as you can possibly imagine, I don't think that necessarily means that you can't believe in God. So it's a kind of agnostic view of things. I, I mean, my view is that I don't know one way or the other, yeah. but I don't, think it, I don't think that evolution is against a belief in God. No, I mistakenly had him down as an atheist, actually. And I, I love what he says there. And I often get asked about this. It is, he's saying, see, Richard Dawkins' argument was evolution is true. Point one, evolution is true. Point two, therefore there is no God. And Attenborough just destroys that. He says, well, if evolution is true, it has nothing to say about the existence of God. Uh, and I, I'm, to be honest, I agree with that. I think that there are arguments for and against evolution. I know for some of you that's heresy. For some of you it's heresy to even question evolution. And for some of you it's heresy even to say that that could be what God has used. But I'm just, maybe I'm just a heretic. I think both those things, I do question evolution and I do think that God could have used it. But I'm just astonished to get that from David Attenborough and uh, thanks to the wonders of TikTok, bizarrely, uh, I share it with you. All right, um, I was going to mention several people who died, but then this person died. Uh, listen to this. Does character matter? That's going to be the big issue in the presidential race. Now, of course it matters. We don't want somebody in a White House sniffing paint and pawning the green room antiques. But what do we mean by character? Are we talking about personal character? Now, if so, we know which candidate has played by the rules and done his duty and which candidate has the mushy-touchy, go-with-the-feeling, daytime TV morality invented by my generation, and I would like to apologize. But personal character can be misleading in politics. Our best-liked president, JFK, and our worst-liked, Nixon, we're both rascals. While the silliest president ever, Jimmy Carter, had so many scruples he couldn't dock Amy's allowance without getting UN okay. We should be talking about political character. 
Does the candidate have political principles about freedom and responsibility, social obligations, respect for the individual? And does the candidate stick to these principles in the face of all polling data and no matter what Ralph Reed or Hillary Clinton says? Short answer for Bob Dole, no. And Bill Clinton, double no with cheese. That is PJ O'Rourke. Uh, he, just an amazing guy. He's a great American journalist and satirist. He, he died, I think, this week. He's aged just 74. Um, I think the Spectator article, which Stephen Daisley wrote, says that he was unusual for an American conservative because he actually believed in conserving things. And he was unusual for an American libertarian, which he was, and they had views on things other than weed. He was a skeptic of big government, big plans, big ideas, and a proud disbeliever in the inherent goodness of human beings. There's some great lines. Um, Liberals, he said, have a quaint and touching faith that truth is on their side and an even quainter faith that journalists are on the side of truth. Daisley says that O'Rourke wasn't driven mad by Donald Trump like some conservative intellectuals, but he did vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016 on the basis that she's wrong about absolutely everything, but she's wrong within normal parameters. I think that his prose is absolutely delicious, sometimes outrageous. It, it flew and it bit. Um, I also think that there's very little chance of, of him being published today. All right, um, we're going to leave you uh, with, I'm going to think about a world to win. You know, we, th we think about the woke world. We think about a world which is in debt. We think about a world which is sick. We think about a broken world. We think about a wonderful world with great stories. But in all of that, it's a world that is to win. We're talking about picking up the pieces, shattering things. Anyone can shatter things and things being shattered and just lamenting what's shattered. That's no use. What are we going to do? I thought about this this week and and, and this is probably not an original thought, but it was my thought anyway. <laughs> the greatest tyranny is when the people are their own jailers. The greatest and most effective censorship is self-censorship. We mustn't do that. We have got, we, we can't, you know, we can't have a revolution that takes over and sorts everything out. And we shouldn't rely on a human messiah. But if we are Christians, especially, this little light of mine, we've got to let it shine. I want you all to rise from your seats now. And I'm going to love you and leave you with this great version from Bruce Springsteen and his band and a gospel choir. I think this was in Dublin. Uh, this little light of mine. If you got any information or news, and I'm sorry I've not been able to pass on much of your news this week, uh, then please do write and let me know. Uh, if you'd like to support us, then go to the Podbean fundraiser and... Rejoice that we live, although it's a broken world, it's a wonderful world, and we let our light shine. God bless you and see you next week. Well, now this is a lot of mine I'm gonna let it shine Well, now this is a lot of mine